Thank you. All right, well, good morning. I am very excited to be here and a little bit nervous, and so hopefully in a few minutes my heart will just settle just a hair. Um, Thank y'all for smiling at me. It is a little scary to be up here. Um, I just wanted to give y'all just a quick little bit about me and my family. Uh, Phil and I have been here for 22 years at First Evan. Um, We have three beloved daughters, Olivia Grace, Layton, and May, and one new-to-us son, Chris. Um, who we love, and who recently hung the moon and stars for our oldest daughter in March. Um, You and I both know that is not theologically correct in light of our Genesis study, but you know what I mean. Um, Phil and I are very recently empty nesters-ish, so that has been fun and wonderful and a little bit weird being home alone, so we're figuring out what that's going to look like. So um, that's just a little bit about us. So the first thing I want us to look at is just kind of a summary of where we are in this last week of study. So this table, I love charts and maps. I don't know if any of y'all are map people. If I could have made every slide a map, that would have been really fun for me. Um, But this first one is just a little table that helped me see the arc that is in your books. It's what we've looked at all week. Um, It's the story arc of the call to repent, of God's judgment, the coming Messiah, and then the new covenant. Um, So that kind of breaks out for us the four sections of our reading that we had all week long and kind of where they fit in that story arc for us. So we last ended on our timeline with King Solomon, having built the temple and ushered in a period of peace for Israel, despite his failures in keeping God's law. And Cricket walked us through the five books of wisdom literature last week and helped us see where all of that ties together in the midst of what we've been reading for the last two weeks. So this week, we saw the steep descent into judgment, a text that was heartbreaking and heavy and sobering. We surveyed an arc of scripture that included the repentance, judgment, the coming Messiah, and the new covenant, all taking place and foretold under the umbrella of exile in Babylon. And as I said, I'm a map girl, so I wanted to see an idea of what this journey may have looked like. Um, So... You can see over to the right, Babylon in brown, and then Israel over there on the left in the bluish against the ocean. Uh, It helps to kind of visualize what may have been like being taken into captivity that far. It's about 750 miles from what I could find. That's roughly from here to way west Texas maybe, Um, perhaps on foot. There was a caravan Anywhere could have taken from weeks to to months for each of these three waves of Israelites that were taken out and over. And just can you imagine seeing one wave of folks just taken away from you and you're waiting, knowing you're next, especially if you're recalling the prophecy that's been told for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it just occurred to me thinking every mile of those 700 plus miles with the words of the prophets now realized and playing over and over in your mind. But God had a plan to return them to their land and to deliver them through his suffering servant. We know this to be the Messiah and the new covenant that he would bring about. So that's where we start for this week. Um, What I wanted us to think about is for now, they face the prospect that many among them might not live to see the end of their captivity or their days among the Babylonians. 
They had to find a way to live and endure in this place and these circumstances that they did not want. I think I've been there. Have you been there? I was reminded of the word sojourner this weekend, more than once and in many different settings. But over time, the Bible ascribes the word exile to us as well, those scattered as the church and grafted in as citizens of heaven, sojourners. So sojourner, that word, it's a person residing in a place that is not their permanent home. And of course, we know we can't place ourselves in every aspect of the stories we read in the Old Testament. But as always, we can form a deeper understanding of who God is and what his purposes are for us in his plan of restoration. So for our time together this morning, I wanted to think about who is the exile here? Who is it that we're talking about? The Israelites, right? But let's look at this passage from 1 Peter. Peter draws a clear correlation. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1 and a few verses from verse chapter 2. Oh, y'all. This is the first time I've taught since I have acquired the need for glasses, and I didn't think about that, but I think I'm good. Just hold just one second. Um, okay, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. So Peter addresses the church that's been scattered as the exiles. And we've got exiles here that we see in Israel taken to Babylon. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. Oh, y'all. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Let me gather myself again. Um, Talking about exiles, we see from the garden, exiled, to the Israelites, exiled, to the early church, exiled, to the Great Commission. God's people are sent out sent out from where we think our permanent home should be, but sent out as people who are in a temporary home because our future home is somewhere else. The reasons for the circumstances of the sent out, of the exile, of all those different kind of categories I talked about are, of course, different. Some are consequences of judgment. Some are purposes that God has. Not a consequence of sin. Part of God's overall plan. But we need to see the fact remains that we who are his are not at home and we are not to view where he appoints us as our permanent residence. This is temporary. The Israelites are the exiles we're going to look at more closely today. But we look at ourselves too. We are also living as exiles. And I want us to look together at this text to see what will change how we live. So the main idea Because God is serious about his holiness and the holiness of his people, he shows us pitfalls to avoid and practices to adopt as his sojourners. As we've seen over and over, God is serious about evil and how he judges it. And he is equally serious about his holiness. 
He is faithful to an unfaithful people because of who he is, because of his servant, Jesus, so that we can be brought near out of exile. That was the hope of the Israelites for his first coming, and it is our hope for when he returns. So we're going to look at three pitfalls in Deuteronomy and Ezekiel, three pitfalls to avoid, and we're going to look at three practices to adopt in Jeremiah and 1 Peter. So first, we're going to look at three pitfalls. Alliteration and poetry are not my strong suit. Tried desperately to do that for a while. It didn't work out. So pitfalls to avoid. Sins of Deuteronomy. These are the things that really God and the prophets, through the prophets, kept calling over and over and over again. Beware, be watchful, be cautious for these things. Insincere offerings, idolatry, injustice. We've talked about that for weeks, really, as we looked through the Torah books, uh, especially with Deuteronomy, and looking at all the things that the Israelites pursued in wickedness against what God prescribed. We're also going to talk about denial and despair. Those are going to be our three pitfalls. Our three practices to adopt are going to be building community, building family, and bringing hope with a capital H. So, looking at our pitfalls. First one, sins of Deuteronomy. In Isaiah 1, 11 through 13, we see the evidence of God's rejection of their religious ritualism, as well as idolatry and participants in injustice. We've talked about idolatry in our small groups. I know ours did. We did for, for several weeks. Um, and what that looks like in our present day life and what God calls idolatry. It's so much more than sometimes what we can be dismissive, dismissive of. It can creep in very insidiously. And injustices that they were a part of, that they were complicit in. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about injustice later when we talk about welfare, but the good, the good that God has for us, the shalom, the peace that we've talked about, the flourishing. So when we talk about religious ritualism, empty offerings, legalism is not the holiness God is after. The spiritual disciplines of reading God's word, bringing our offerings into the church, prayer, partaking the Lord's Supper, corporate worship, scripture memory, serving the body, all of these good things can become severed from the intentionality of our heart and mind. These can be hard to see. They can be hard to identify in ourselves. But we ask God to convict our heart by his Holy Spirit to show us where we need to confess and regroup when we're guilty of habitual practices. Detached offerings and religious habits are empty if there is no heart engagement by the Holy Spirit. Zoned out, wrote, empty worship cheats both us and our Heavenly Father of his due, which is our whole heart and soul and strength. Sometimes we just need to ask him to restore our joy. So sometimes we're guilty of the other side of the coin. In this Isaiah passage, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough, says the Lord. We read this passage, the over and over and over again of just empty offerings in vanity that the Lord then describes it. Sometimes we're guilty of indignant offerings. To me, this is the act of checking the box, or worse yet, willfully hardening our heart against God while going through the motions of an outward faith. 
nothing short of our very lives in the form of a living, walking, breathing, daily sacrifice is due him. Offering to the Lord anything while we are unwilling to turn from deliberate sin in another area of our life is offensive to God. In vain, in this scripture passage in Isaiah, refers to the obstacle that this type of habitual practice is to growing in a personal and intimate knowledge of the Lord, which is what he desires for us, right? This is one of our first pitfalls to avoid insincere offerings and empty discipline because the only way we can know him and receive his righteousness is by faith, believing his work and nothing else. Some commentary from the Bible recap. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that, Tara Lee Cobble. Um, Christy actually recommended that to me last year, and it has been such a help to me. It's kind of a compilation of themes throughout scripture, but when we're covering so much at once, it's really helped to draw some themes together for me. So if you haven't checked that out, I might recommend that to you. But this commentary from the Bible recap puts it this way. Biblical Christianity is not merely ritualistic. A return to ritualism is regression into spiritual slavery and can prevent mature knowledge of God, which is what Paul and the apostles labored for on our behalf. So the question I want to ask you as we look at this first pitfall, the sins out of Deuteronomy is, where has my heart become disconnected and detached from spiritual discipline? And then if there is something that the Lord brings to mind to confess it, regroup and ask him to restore your joy in the practice. So the second pitfall to avoid I want to talk about is denial. During the study, I discovered Eugene Peterson's well-read description of how we're not to travel through exile. You may have read or heard these preached on before, but I love his words bringing out the sisters of denial and despair. He cautions us to be watchful against denial and despair because catastrophe comes to us all in some form or another. In this text, the catastrophe is the one of captivity. But when catastrophe strikes, even for us, and a person's world can feel like it is falling apart, denial refuses to acknowledge the obvious challenge before it. Have you been there? Denial says God would not possibly follow through on what he said when it comes before us. Denial says, surely God does not mean for me to endure this. Denial can say flippantly, the consequences won't be that bad. We saw some of these echoes in what the Israelites experienced. They heard over and over again what God would do, how he was compelled to act because of his holiness. And yet, perhaps they didn't really think it was gonna gonna work out that way. They were his. They were his chosen people. Perhaps it didn't really, all the way, really apply. So God gave the prophet Ezekiel, to show them in brilliant, undeniable imagery that the coming judgment was very real and to wake up, turn around, turn their hearts back to the holiness of God. We can take God at his word. We should do nothing less. He is faithful to do good to his beloved and he is faithful to judge rightly. So a question for you when it comes to denial In what area of my life do I need to take God at his word? 
The third pitfall. We've looked at sins of Deuteronomy, denial, and now despair. Despair is the sister to denial. Where denial won't look or open its eyes at all, despair can see nothing else but the devastation before it. Despair is vanquished, overwhelmed, pressed down, and giving up. Everything feels lost and there is no hope in sight. God appears to have forsaken them and he no longer sees them in their distress. Are you upended by an unwanted circumstance or hardship? It can be so, so hard to dig ourselves out. We have to seek out help. We have the body of Christ. We have the spirit dwelling in us if we belong to him. But we're not meant to do that in isolation. This Ezekiel passage, chapter 34, verse 11 to 16. God, the master says, from now on, I myself am the shepherd. I am going looking for them. Isn't that beautiful? I loved that passage in Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 34 that we looked at where the prophet told them God will be the kind of shepherd that they should have had. The leaders had become corrupt, hadn't they? They were not leading them as a true shepherd should. And already he gives them that, that picture of what his shepherding looks like. That he would do away with the negligent leaders over them, the corruption. And he reminds us that God is always at work with plans to restore and is sovereignly using the catastrophe at hand for his good purposes. He says, I myself am the shepherd. So listen to these adjectives. These are some key words that stood out to me in that passage in Ezekiel 34. Going after, rescue, feed, lead, collect the strays, doctor the injured, build up and oversee. Now, these are some of the words that came out of my, that's from the message translation. I refer to that one sometimes to help me see some different, different ways. Um, but what a picture of nourishing, of care, of shepherding, of what that should look like. And don't we long for that, especially when we're despairing. When we're tempted to despair, this is the kind of shepherd we need to lift us up and out and onward again on our feet. God sees each one of us where we are, and he is to whom we run. He is able. Are you, am I, grieving a version of my life that I thought was due me? Am I holding on to a belief that I don't deserve my circumstances? In Ezekiel 9.4, we see a reminder of the Passover, God's preservation of his own. Ezekiel says, don't despair. By a mark on the forehead, God will pass by anyone with the mark who is repentant over the wickedness displayed. In a vivid display, we read how the cherubim carry God's presence out of the temple. But he will return to dwell with his own again, won't he? God, give us eyes to see those around us. Embolden us to offer your hand of mercy and give us strength to place our despair in your loving arms. So our pitfalls to avoid, looking at the Israelites, looking at what it's like today to walk through some of those same circumstances that put us in a position of exile, make us sojourners, um, the sins of Deuteronomy, denial, and despair. So we're going to turn the page and move to some proactive things. What are some practices we can adopt 
that come from the prophets, that come from what we've read in our text this week, as well as the New Testament. I went rogue and pulled a few passages out of 1 Peter that were not in our reading this week, but they really spoke to me as a correlation of when we're talking about the sojourner in our position of exile at times. So the practices to adopt. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, and 1 Peter 2 through 3. These practices are building community, building a family, and bringing hope. These are things we can adopt and incorporate into our own life as believers and as grafted ones into the family of God. So N.T. Wright, in his book, Evil and the Justice of God, emphasizes that we cannot just transcend our way out of temporary places we don't want to believe in, we don't want to be in. That's the way of spiritualism, right? Checking out, disengaging from society and community, isolating. First Peter tells us who we are and what we are given. We must have those two things nailed down if we're going to make it in a place of exile. When we think about disengaging, perhaps not really rooting where God has placed us, we, can't, we know that we can't go around over or under the place and time God has appointed for us to be and to live and to work and to play. This idea of going through it reminded me of a child's book I was reading to a dear friend's little girl the other night. I guess the storyline itself doesn't tie into what we're talking about today. But the repeated phrase in the book some of you may know is, can't go over it, can't go under it. Guess we'll have to go through it. And that just kept ringing in my head as I was thinking about this. So often, Lord, take me around. Friends, pray me out of this circumstance. I want to kind of get under it, get over it. And doesn't often the Lord want us to walk right through it. In it, that's where he strengthens us. It's where we're formed to look more like him. And in it is where the Lord uses us to more perfectly reflect his glory. God desires that we go through it sojourning our way because it is in the as we are going that we are sanctified and we are reflective and polished. And since we've got to go through it, God in his merciful kindness gives us a role in bringing about beauty, God-honoring relationships, justice, and the hope of Jesus along the way. So I want to look at three ways that we might can be a part of doing this. The first one is build community. Jeremiah was God's voice to the kingdom of Judah during the reign of their last five kings, a period of 40 years. Scripture tells us that his own family, Jeremiah's, plotted against him. He was ridiculed. He was attacked by mobs of Judeans, the very people he was trying to warn and help that God had called him to, threatened by the king, persecuted under King Zedekiah's reign to imprisonment, And Jeremiah was there as they were led away into captivity amidst horrible destruction. Not only was his message not heeded, he witnessed all that God had warned would come to pass. Utter devastation at the hands of the Babylonians. And yet, have you heard this phrase before? Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Jeremiah 29, this passage here. Oh, y'all. You know what? 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I don't know why, but it just hit me in a new way this time about seeking the welfare of the city where I've sent you. You know, Lynn painted for us that beautiful piece that's out there in the foyer with that passage, seek the welfare of the city you're in. And I think about when you're in a city that you've chosen and you get to be the benevolent hands and feet of Jesus because you love your city. That's kind of a different ball of wax than what we're talking about here, isn't it? They'd been brought into captivity and they're told, seek the welfare of this city, Babylon. The people that have wrought destruction and you have to live amongst, and I've told you it's going to be for a long time. That, that, feels, that feels like a hard pill to swallow, do you think? Building houses, planting gardens requires us to commit and engage with those around us. Seeking the welfare of those that have sought everything but good welfare for you. But that perhaps is what we call justice, God's justice. The beauty of it is that this makes us stronger and it weaves strength into the community around us for his glory. This happens one by one when each of us knows our neighbor gets to know our coworker, talks to the mom at a school event, knows the business owner that we visit every week. First Peter chapters three and four lay out in detail, which I'm not gonna read this morning to you, but it lays out in detail what it means to live in unity while we're temporary residents. Love, do not repay evil for evil. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is what building community looks like. So my question for us this morning is, how are you building community in your neighborhood and in our city? The next one we're going to look at is building family. And the passage we read earlier in Jeremiah 29, of course, is speaking to the obvious of marrying, multiplying children, generational faith being passed down. But what God impressed upon me for this is the building of a spiritual family and legacy. And I have remembrances of cricket teaching years and years over leaving a legacy that we've all walked through with that and what that looks like. That is irrelevant to whether or not we are married, whether we have children, what stage of life we're in. Those things matter. We're to build legacy into them, of course, in our families, if God has given that to us. But when we don't have that, does that exempt us from building in generational legacy of faith? I don't think this passage lets us off the hook, do you? So what God is saying is they are told, don't decrease while you're in exile. Build into the next generation. Don't stop what it takes to faithfully build into the family of faith decade after decade after decade because it's going to be seven decades, right? What if they stopped? What kind of, what legacy would be left to begin to take back and rebuild and regroup if they just gave up in despair or denial. Reminding, remembering, 
teaching and instructing. This is a familiar refrain from Deuteronomy as well. And one of the things they were guilty of, which brought about their destruction, was forsaking that very principle. So a failure to pass it on. We don't want to be guilty of that. You don't have to be married, have your own children to leave a legacy of faith. We know this, but do we live like it? Whether we have our own family units or not, God calls us to faithfully teach the next generation. And this is discipleship. How many spiritual children can you call to mind? Are you in relationship with your friends, kids, grandkids? Do you hold your own kids with open hands and invite those spiritual relationships in the form of other faithful men and women without ownership or jealousy? I am so grateful for the women who have poured into my daughters. Yes, it is my responsibility as their parents, mine and my husband's, but the immeasurable gift of those outside of our home who have built into them, prayed with them, looked at scripture with them, has made them stronger. Whatever age you are, it is not too late. What God has imparted to you, he means for it to be a gift to someone else in the faith down the road. So my question to you, how are you building the family of faith? In whom are you building a legacy? Our third practice to adopt, we talked about, oh, y'all have already blanked out. I'm good. Build community, build family, and bring hope. And we know what that hope is. Not hope that the world offers. Not the little h not the fleeting hope, not the hope based on our circumstances or what's going right, but the hope of Jesus, the hope of eternal everlasting promise. Jeremiah is not just the bearer of the prophecy for their destruction, is he? He brings the promise of hope for the restoration to come. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33 says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, and I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God graciously does not leave the Israelites to wonder what will come after their captivity. Through Jeremiah, they are assured that God's plan for them is to prosper them, to bring them hope and a future. In chapter 30, he says they'll no longer be enslaved. In chapter 31, he tells them specifically Israel will be rebuilt. In chapter 33, he says that health and abundant peace and cleansing for their sin is all going to come to them. And we know that the new covenant, the ones that comes to us as Gentiles, is that he dwells with us again. That is the pin that holds it all together, isn't it? His indwelling through the Holy Spirit. We don't have to chase an ark. We don't have to rely on a temple but we have access to his holiness because of his perfect savior, servant Jesus. How can we not share this hope? It should radiate in and through us and be unquenchable. I cannot be a hope dealer if I'm consumed with truth and not grace. I can't be a hope dealer if I'm all grace and no truth. Either of those options is a false hope. Be a purveyor of the true hope. Be a hope dealer in the places where God has appointed you. 
So in closing, this passage from 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Meditate on the hope that is within you. Thank God for it and let it spill out everywhere you go. So in closing, I just want to pause real quick to mention to y'all, I know Christy has encouraged you to think about attending the Cojourner event. We've talked about exile, sojourner. Cojourner is very close related. This is next Saturday, the 18th, with some of our missionary partners, Gabor and Edna Grace. And it's talking about walking together as sojourners, cojourners, what it looks like to have those conversations, to build that community, to build that family of legacy, and to bring hope in the city we're appointed in here. So if you haven't thought about going, I'm going. I know you probably know someone who is going, and I really hope you will think about going. You can register Sunday or call the church, and they'll help get you plugged in for that event. So I want to close with a short clip from a longer video from the Bible Project. These videos have been around a while, um, but it spoke to where we're ending our time together this morning. So um, as you get ready to watch this, I just want to leave you with a charge. Father, Make us sojourners willing to be used for your glory and ever mindful of the hope within us. Now Israel's scriptures held out hope that one day God would send a king who would rescue the world from all of the Babylons we've created. And after many generations pass, we meet this Israelite named Jesus of Nazareth. He wandered about with no home, announcing the great restoration, that reality of home that Israel and all humanity has been looking for. Yeah, Jesus really cared about people who didn't have homes. He welcomed in the stranger. He said God's love is shown when you invite in the outcast and throw parties for people who don't have a place to belong. Jesus also claimed that Israel and all humanity had lost its way, that our self-centeredness drives us to create false homes based on status and power, and these inevitably exclude others. We live in an exile of our own making. But Jesus said the true way home is one of weakness, of service, and of forgiveness. And then Jesus went into exile alongside us to show us the true way home. Which is? Well, Jesus said he is the way. His life and self-giving love proved more powerful than humanity's failure. He opened up a pathway to our real home. And as Jesus' followers committed themselves to him, they discovered this new way of being human. They believed that the real return from exile had begun. And so they would call themselves sojourners or wanderers. Oh, right. They would say things like, the world isn't our home and we're citizens of heaven. And so Jesus' followers remain exiles as they wait for that day when Jesus returns to transform this world into a true home.